these kinds of leaders in China uh, is absolutely this way. The party needs the gun, okay? And it has to make sure the gun is under its control. So what we have seen with Xi Jinping is he's taken extraordinary steps. And the weapon, of course, he used was the uh, corruption of Chinese generals. It turned out that in the Chinese system, if you wanted to become a general, you needed to hand somebody up the line a million dollars. And there was a sliding scale depending on what level of command promotion you needed. Very Chinese way of doing things. Uh, um, and, And he got this information, and he has taken the Chinese military apart and rebuilt it to be loyal to him. Now, it's a tricky balance because at the same time, he didn't want to lose their esprit de corps and the people's um, respect for the military because you need the military to be respected, right? So one of the things I postulate is a lot of what was done in the South China Sea was actually, as he was hitting them hard, he was giving them a a, a field assignment that would make them look good to the Chinese people. So one of the things that was interesting is in his speech at the 19th Party Congress, he cites the South China Sea as one of his great accomplishments. And if you look at the pictures they put out, you have brave Chinese soldiers standing on these atolls guarding the motherland. It's, it's, it's a very evocative thing in China, and it, and it stimulates the patriotism. So you need the military, but you've got to control the military. And, and all Chinese leaders have had to deal with this balance between sort of praising the military so that they stay with you, but also making sure no general gets strong enough so that power ebbs away from you. Um, Sure. So again, in the Arab world, I mean, I think controlling the military is important. In in the case of Saddam Hussein, he's really kind of an exception in the sense not only he was not a military officer, he was not accepted to the military college, something that he really never, ever forgave it uh, uh, for that. And as a result, pretended to become a field marshal, and of course with disastrous results during the Iran-Iraq war, similar to other leaders who are not military leaders where like Hitler would intervene in the uh, uh, affairs. In different countries, the situation was really different. Assad was in the Air Force, was a, a respectable respected uh, uh, army officer, had a lot of support from the army. Um, But at the same time, they all have this intelligence services that really becomes even more powerful in many ways than the military. Um, In Iraq, for example, the system of political commissars was introduced literally along the lines of Stalinism in every uh, unit. Um, In country like Egypt, it's really interesting because Mubarak is part and parcel of the army, and he had relatively the support of the army. I think one of the reasons that the army was not happy with his son as he wanted is because they were scared that someone who's not from the army and does not understand the power, after all, the army and the military uh, uh, in Egypt 
almost controls about a third of the whole economy. And therefore, having someone who's younger or has never been in the army is really not going to work out. But I think that, obviously, the power, in my opinion, of those intelligence services in, in many of these places far outweigh the, the, the role of the military. But al-Sisi is also a, of course, of the, the military. This, absolutely. Right. Part and parcel of, of that unit. I do know Erdogan does not like military parades. <laughs> <laughs> He's done his best in the last few, well, since coming to office, of avoiding as many of them or we, getting we out of an hour and 15 minutes without touching <laughs> on the obvious. <laughs> um, I mean, for those who are aware of Turkey and Turkey's military, I and mean, we do know Turkey's influ the Turkish military's influence in, in political activities has been far-reaching. They've been politically active basically since the early 1960s. Erdogan's relationship with the military or the political elite's relationship with the military has always been complicated. But suffice it to say that since 1960, based on the military's perception as the supreme arbiters of, or self-belief that, that they are the arbiters of how Turkey should be governed, they have carved out an autonomous role within the state uh, through various institutional mechanisms such as the National Security Council in Turkey, um, which used to meet once a month, to basically determine policy on a whole range of security and domestic uh, as well as foreign policy issues. So on top of that, when Erdogan comes to power, he's up against something that all, all uh, civilian leaders in, in Turkey up against, are up against. How do you manage this relationship? And Erdogan had a particular strike against him uh, because the military in Turkey has always perceived the political movement which Erdogan comes from, which is Turkey's branch of political Islam, as anti-systemic, a, a political ideology which has a gripe with the secular regime in Turkey, and something that they're going to keep a very sharp eye on him for uh, as, he, as he governs as a politically govern, uh, governing elected person. Um, Erdogan was smart about this. He came to power in 2003 saying, I've changed. I don't believe in my anti-systemic beliefs. We are a NATO country and we have a, NATO, a professional NATO military. But upon assuming power, Erdogan's problem was how to basically shift the balance of the military having an autonomous and power-heavy role within the civilian administration to one which he and his party in the civilian <laughs> regime had the upper hand. And that took time. And throughout, since 2013, Erdogan has not faced any political opposition in parliament, in civilian life. Not because he crushed them initially or whatever, but he was so wildly politically and economically popular amongst the voting population that he didn't face any political challenges, except the military. He nominated uh, Abdullah Gül in 2007 for the presidency, which was the last time the military took a stand against Erdogan, saying, we are not impartial to... Uh, who is president of this country, after which time Erdogan basically gave them their marching orders. Um, but he's obviously very, very um, worried about them still, and I agree. He needs them, but he's also troubled by them. And the coup attempt of 2016 was the closest element uh, that Erdogan came to being successfully challenged out of power, one way or another. That said, and this should be essentially, I think, a, a warning point, you know, We've believed that the, t the Turkish military has been decimated under Erdogan uh, as a political force, not just since the coup, 
but also since law changes and constitutional changes making the military accountable to civilian law. But I would say that the Turkish Armed Forces is 1.2 million strong. <clears throat> but there are militaries within the military. There are factions, <clears throat> some of which have probably been eliminated. But Erdogan can never feel for certain that another coup may not be in the making. It is a professional military, but it is also at, level, at some level, and at certain times in its uh, history, uh, probably even still, at some level has political ambitions. Um, and he has so far managed, so far, and I choose that again carefully, to co-opt the present leadership of the military to stand behind him. Let me, uh, if it's okay, Joseph, ask you a question. And sure. Sinan, feel free to weigh in before we open it up to the audience. Do we have microphones, she paid? Uh, we do? Uh, okay, we'll, we'll pass the microphone around. So, we both are regionalists. Um, we focus on one region of the world. We bring social science tools, humanities to it. Um, when I started in graduate school in the mid-'80s, um, mid to late-'80s, um, the prevailing um, uh, sort of scholarly thrust was represented by people like Lucian Pai at MIT who argued that there was a Confucian style of authoritarian leadership in Asia and that it was almost culturally predetermined and that as regionalists, we were taught when I was a graduate student, you need to understand that um, in countries like Korea or Taiwan or the Philippines and, of course, China, this collectivist Confucian rice cultivation culture uh, makes populations more comfortable with strong authoritarian leaders. And then, as I was studying, uh, Korea democratized, the Philippines democratized, Taiwan democratized, Tiananmen happened, and the whole field was thrown into disarray, and I'd say... The majority view now is, no, in fact, you have to look at these uh, with a non-cultural lens in a way at, um, at social science tools. But then as the authoritarianism creeps back, the, the field of Asian studies is again engaged in this debate. Is there a similar thing happening in Arab studies? Is there a culturalist explanation? Uh, I, I don't really believe in the cultural explanation. I mean, I, I think authoritarianism, as we just talked about it, spans so many regions, so many countries across all religions, I don't think it's, it's related to one area. Um, I think the real issues that face, for example, the region, the Arab world, is actually more the, the, the economic problems that in Asia or South America are not facing. And I think that's one of the reasons, whether you look at all the countries you mentioned, the Philippines, other places, that have benefited from an, a proper economic boom, not just because oil prices went up mm -hmm. with no industry, no manufacturing, no export. I mean, there is this whole concept of comparing South Korea with Egypt, where both countries in 1960 had the same population, both lacked natural resources, both allocated anywhere between 12 to 15% to military, and um, the same GDP. So everything really similar. And 40 years later, 2000, in the interim, Egypt has 20 years of peace with Israel from 1979 until 2000. So the military budget drops to 6-7%. You would think Egypt would be better off. And then we see that Korea is five and a half times the GDP of, of Egypt. And I, I think that really kind of tells you what the real problems 
facing countries like whether Egypt or, or Syria. Look at Iraq today. I mean, every time I open the newspaper this week and I see Iraq wants another $84 billion, I feel like tearing my computer and... and where did the money go? I mean, after all the investments that the U.S., the West, at some point in 2007, 8, Iraq had official reserves in the U.S. and Britain of $140 billion when oil price hit $140. Where did it go? Now they want another 80 million billion. It's unbelievable. It's really one of the things that comes out from all this is this endemic corruption at all levels. What is really interesting, if you look back at authoritarian leaders going to the 50s, 60s, whether in the Arab world or other places, they really were not interested in money. I mean, all those leaders died penniless. It doesn't matter how cruel or authoritarian they were. That is not anymore the cases. They're all billionaires and, and a huge... I mean, you know, Tunisia bin Ali leaves his family, was controlling 30% of the country. Um, the Egypt slash the army, 30% of the GDP, and you just heard about China and... and all this corruption is really, to me, the real problem facing authoritarianism. Hi, uh, my name is Andy Schweitzer. I'm in the Asian Studies program. So, dear leader, Dr. Green, thank you very much. Um, I just, um, I had a question about um, kind of what are these about signals. So, we talked about how Xi Jinping takes down generals, Kim Jong Un, his uncle, Turkey squashes protests. Are these signs of weakness, of insecurity, or are these signs of strength because they're still in power? You know, this is, to me, one of the really hard questions about Xi Jinping, because we all thought sort of that once he had consolidated power for the 19th Party Congress last fall, and there's no question he consolidated, that he would sort of back off some of these things that he had been doing, and yet he seems compelled to continue. I didn't mention it, but uh, Sunday, uh, China released a new video in its media that now calls him the people's leader. Well, this is a term that hasn't been used in China since Mao. Mm -hmm. why, why does he need that? There's, there's got to be an insecurity there. And I wanted to uh, pick up on something that was said about economics. In some ways, China has the opposite economic problem. It's almost been too successful. Mm. And so the authoritarian leader is losing control because people are out there just going gangbusters. And the middle class is growing. And, and how does the party say, oh, no, you have to keep listening to us when they're saying, wait a minute, I'm doing pretty well. I don't need you guys anymore. <laughs> and that's what happened with some of these billionaires, the Wang Da case and, and other things. So I think the insecurity never goes away. Yeah. No matter how much you think you've consolidated, because you don't have an election system that tells you that you're still popular, right? You can't, how do you, how do you gauge your popularity with 1.3 billion Chinese? What's, what's, the, what's the measure of popularity you use to say, well, they're still with me? The answer is you monitor the internet, you use the secret police, and when you use the secret police, 
Ministry of State Security to monitor the internet and to monitor opposition, everybody looks like a bad guy. Everybody looks like a threat. There's no subject right. to it. So it just reinforces the paranoia. I think in the case of North Korea, um, Kim Jong-un's um, execution of his uncle, of his half-brother, and of dozens of his generals is a shine of short-term strength, mm. but I think probably sows the seeds for his demise eventually. And um, I can't predict this with certainty, but it seems to me, based on history at least, you think of Roman emperors or dictators in the past, you, you start, you know, Chang Song Tech, his uncle, was um, purged twice uh, under Kim Il once under Kim Il sung, once under Kim Jong il. He was a bit of a drunk. He was corrupt. He had ties to China. Um, he didn't pass money around to the right people, and he was sent into, you know, basically uh, internal exile, re education. He came back. The third time, he was arrested, his family was arrested, and they were killed. And um, same for these generals. So sooner or later, it seems to me, someone in the inner circle, the proletariat, the, pro, the, uh, the Praetorian Guard, the inner circle of security services of generals gets called in and thinks, I'm not going down without a fight. I mean, sooner or later, I think this creates the conditions for um, assassination or any other um, uh, assault on the leadership. One of the things about these kinds of authoritarian regimes is the more the leader masses power, the more the entire regime is vulnerable to collapse when the leader's gone. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so assassination or any number of, you know, you, you, there are plenty of examples of history of this eventually going so far and then the leader's demise happens. I don't know if you... I, I, I think you have to be super paranoid. I mean, yeah. no paranoid, that's the main thing in your CV. If you don't have it, then you should uh, resign. Uh, you should leave. It's not good for you. Um, to me, I think it really goes kind together without in feeling the whole time, 24 hours a day, insecure. I don't think you can be a leader. And it really showing whether in Russia today or China or Korea or anywhere in the other places or Turkey. I guess it has to be part and parcel of the game. Yeah, it, I would totally um, agree with the sentiments and all this. And I think there's a lot of commonality across the board. I think, you know, Lenin's, you know, the Bolshevik ideology, one of the things out of the playbook was emphasizing the nature of the permanency of the emergency, you know, permanent state of revolution, permanent, mm. emphasizing of the real dangers that exist to the security of the apparatus. In this modern age, like you said, monitoring the internet, I mean, at that time it was relatively easier, uh, you know, monitoring an authoritarian, if not, you know, a complete system. Um, and the, the need to be paranoid now is, is absolutely more because there are so much more sources that you can't control. Think about what it takes to carry out a coup d'etat today. How do you control sources of information? You know, 1980, when Turkey last had the successful coup, they put a couple of tanks outside of, yeah. of the broadcasting station, you know, you know, several hundred thousand troops deployed on the street. End of story. You shut down the press, you intern the parliament. Today, you can slow down the internet, you can shut it down for a while, but your economy is globally integrated. How are you going to deal with that? Um, and at some point, if you're starting out on the business of consolidating your authoritarian re regime, um, some of the systems that we've talked about have been in place for a while. With Turkey, I mean, Erdogan's in the process of cons trying to consolidate it. Um, you know, he's been, since the coup attempt, two years. Now he's gotten rid of the entire military academies, and he's set up his own new one to, you know, indoctrinate a new generation of officers, N you know, staff the civil service with people with loyalty tests. 
um, you know, slowing down and monitoring the internet. Now, students like yourselves in Turkey, or even scholars, I have friends, who are routinely called into police stations now to explain their latest Facebook update, and it's farcical. But there is that element of control. So it's a sign of weakness, yes, but that's endemic to the system itself. Um, good question. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for uh, talking about everything that you've addressed with these leaders. One thing that came up was, how do these leaders act when they feel pressured? And two countries that were mentioned a lot today, Turkey and North Korea, I think of one obvious, uh, the bloody nose with North Korea, right? And I know Georgetown professors aren't without their opinions on that one, so I wonder if you guys could talk about um, what you think about how how does how does a dictatorial leader respond to a bloody nose attack? And I and I also think also with Turkey there's a chance of some direct confrontation going on with the Kurds. So I think it, it is sort of cross cutting. But how do these leaders react when the United States comes and says, "No, we're going to you know put you in your place or, or you know get our interests there"? So um, the bloody nose for those who haven't followed the North Korea debate uh, is this idea that um, to stop. Kim Jong-un's regime from continuing developing their nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, um, we should hit them militarily for the first time since the Korean War. We've, we haven't used force against North Korea since 1953. And just to be clear, we're not talking about doing that to Turkey, as far as I know. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, the, it, 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 it's, it's a debate that um, uh, I testified uh, uh, about 10 days ago in the Senate Armed Services Committee, Professor Cha here has been right in the middle of this one. Um, uh, my sense is the debate is turning, in part because the U.S. military, our command in Korea, uh, the Joint Staff, don't know what would happen. And it really, in a way, comes down to how you assess leadership. Um, one of the arguments for those saying we should do this is that Kim Jong-un is not deterrable in the conventional sense, because he's an irrational dictator. Therefore, we should hit him with a limited military strike so he takes the lesson and backs down. But there's an obvious contradiction of logic there. If he's irrational and, and therefore can't have nuclear weapons, <laughs> how can we predict that he will understand we're just sending a signal and not attack us or Japan or Korea with nuclear weapons? So the internal logic has, in some ways, caused that debate to start to fall apart, although it's still, I think, part of the range of options that the White House is considering just diminished. Um, and the CIA leadership analysts and, and, and former CIA analysts like Sue Mee Terry at CSIS have said, look, we, we cannot tell you, North Korea is a hard target. We don't know what goes on in Kim Jong-un's mind. There are psychologists who try to assess his leadership remotely. Um, there are a handful of diplomats who've met him, um, but we don't know. And the possibility is not trivial, 10, 20, 30, 40%, that to survive, he'll have to strike back because of everything we just said. If he doesn't respond, then internally he's dead. Right. Um, and uh, we don't know that for certain, but that risk makes it a, an, an attractive option. Yeah. I think what Mike just said is, is the key. How does he perceive this action? Does he perceive it as something that will bring him down? If he perceives it that way, then he's going to respond very violently to it. Mm -hmm. If he thinks whatever the action is is not regime-threatening, then he may not respond that way. But we don't know where his line is. Now, when we were um, uh, taking down Saddam Hussein, uh, I was in Beijing negotiating with the North Koreans for the administration. And on CNN, they had 
pictures of Marines pulling Saddam's statue down in Baghdad. And it was, the TV was on in the lobby of the Dayutai guest house, so we'd have these impossible talks with North Koreans. We'd go out for a coffee break, and the North Koreans would all gather around the TV. <laughs> and um, it is the most leverage we've ever had with the North Koreans. Kim Jong-il went into hiding for 48 yeah, days during the Iraq campaign. Gaddafi gave up his uh, weapons of mass destruction because he was convinced we were going to attack. So um, it's very hard to predict. I mean, that's one of the things about these authoritarian regimes. It's not transparent. And, it's, and we're, we're speculating, really, about the pressures on them, but we don't know, which is why this kind of idea is so dangerous. I think questions on this side. Yeah. There are a few. Yes, yes, please. Uh, hi, my name is Samad. I'm a student at the Arab Studies Department. Um, I think my question, I'm interested to know your thoughts about the application of authoritarianism on US politics. And I'm not thinking in terms of Trump's uh, time but more so starting from Bush and Obama and then Trump under the discourse of uh, the war on terror. And uh, you know, a lot of laws were um, instated during that and they were legitimized as being, even though they were exclusionary under the discourse of the war on terror. And I know we're talking about the Arab world and uh, Asia, but a lot of the things that you mentioned are also resonant for me you know, as an Arab student here. And I think it's important to talk about uh, this concept in the US context that we're in. Are you asking the guys from the Bush White House, sir? <laughs> <laughs> Inside. No, it's, it, it's, uh, please, Joseph. Thank you. Um, um, well, I haven't been living here for a very long time, so I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer that question. Um, I, I mean, I think there is applications of authoritarianism in every system. I, I don't really think, I think there is in every democratic, I don't know, even in the uh, Scandinavian, there are some <laughs> elements. And, and as Dennis said, the US is number 22, you right. said, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it's a matter of scale. I think you go from one, whatever that one is, to something like 180, maybe these days it's North Korea. And it that is changes. North Korea on their list. It is yeah. North yeah. Korea. Okay, so it changes. And, and I, I think that regimes, whether democratic or, or, uh, or authoritarian, are trying to stay in power. I mean, in the sense, even if the leader like here or in France or something like that is going away at the end of his term, he definitely wants his party to win the next one. So that's in the back of the mind, I think, of every leader uh, wherever you go. And it's just a matter of the scale. But I will let others, if they want to comment on that. I think that's a really good and difficult question to answer. I mean, my ill-conceived short answer for now would be to say that I've been here 10 years, um, as in the United States. I would, rather than classified as, as, as authoritarianism in the US context, I would categorize it in the outpouring of populism. And that's probably a reaction to some of the policies that have been implemented throughout the last few administrations. Um, there is a sizable portion of the electorate responding to both US foreign policy, but also, and, and its economic impact on US domestic policies over the last 10, 15 years, which is, you know, had its effect of you know, winners and losers. Um, I think there's a sizable portion of, 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 of voting population of the US which looks at 
different parts of some of these, you know, parts of the world, and we see we 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 see it as threats based on, you know, why are our resources going overseas? Why have we been bedeviled in all of this? Um, what was the logic behind the 2003 invasion of Iraq? What was it? And there is this outpouring of, of, of rage. So that's my very short, um, but just a very brief sentence about the previous question about the bloody nose thing. I think it also feeds into this narrative. Too, and this is possibly something that we, and you, the Korea and China experts, I think, would, are definitely talking about this. Is at present, we, we, the reason why we're talking about bloody nose strategy, it, it's a lack of a grand strategy on part of this administration. Mm -hmm. If the last administration was you know, the biggest charge against threats like this or um, Syria was abandonment of responsibility or leadership in, in these global threats, um, what we now face is a lack of any strategy. Um, and you know, we're talking about punching you know, noses and pre pre the, the, the proclivity for miscalculation on part of adversaries that the United States see. I mean, do they see it as, what do they perceive as it, the president is capable of? Um, and it emboldens these authoritarian leaders to actually push the, the barrier a little further, you know, and see how the U.S. responds. I mean, in the case of Erdogan, you know, they're fed up. Uh, you know, we said after the Islamic State falls, then you know, our partnership with the Kurds, you know, we're going to stop arming them, whatever. The Secretary of State announced uh, 30 days ago or less that we're going to establish a, a border patrol of 30,000 uh, YPG fighters. And Erdogan looked at it and says, "Okay, I'm done." I'm going to send my own military into. What are you going to do about it? I think a lack of grand strategy and unpredictability on a part of where the United States firmly stands as a policy on North Korea, China, the Middle East is really up there. And we're talking about nuclear arsenals now. Are we are, terrorism? Yeah, <clears throat> uh, it's a very precarious situation. You know the. There are two ways to answer your question. Um, so Dennis and I. Well, I was senior director. I had uh, Pakistan, India. I think you had East Asia, mm -hmm. um, but I had it South and East Asia when I was in the job. And um, on the one hand, the fact that we were fighting a war against an Arab leader, inevitably, no matter how we conducted it, created diplomatic problems for us, not only in the Middle East, but in Indonesia and Malaysia, even in Singapore, no matter how we conducted it. Um, uh, the politics are a separate matter. And I remember when President Bush ran for re-election in 2004 and he went out to swing states like Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan, the, the line that got the most applause, interestingly, was when he talked about Afghan women voting um, for the first time in basically history. And you know, so um, I think for our boss, um, that was um, an important takeaway for him. Um, but at the same time, the reality was in 2004, the focus groups and the surveys showed that women voters trusted George Bush more than John Kerry to protect them from terrorism. And so it was inevitable that Karl Rove and others wanted to try to you know, um, play up that you can count on us theme, which, which was in some tension with the president's um, recognition that politically, the fact that you know, Afghan women were voting and so forth was so important. He, uh, immediately after 9-11, met with um, faith leaders from across um, different uh, Islamic um, denominations and sects. Uh, he was very, very concerned about it. Um, Barack Obama tried, of course, to speak to the Muslim world. I'm not sure it was a great success. Um, ironically, his uh, American um, uh, images in Pakistan in particular plummeted in the Obama administration because although we didn't have as many ground forces, he was using drones. 
Um, it's a real problem. I, the current president has demagogued on the way on this in a way that is we haven't talked about it much, but is 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 evocative of some of the things we're talking about among authoritarian leaders elsewhere. Any political leader tries to brand the other side as um, wrong. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama did it. You know, there's no blue state, there's no red state, there's a purple state. He was trying to brand his Republican opponents as hyperpartisan. I mean, every political leader tries to brand the other side as the other, but we're in an extreme version of that now that's not healthy, that I think in many ways the, the public is reacting against. Um, but uh, it's a very good question. And, uh, and, it, and, and even in a democracy with all the checks and balances, the temptation uh, is, is strong to demagogue. Um, and it's one we should all watch out for. Um, yes, Michael, is that you in the back? Thanks so much. Michael Chen, recent Asian Studies graduate, now with Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. I wanted to ask Dr. Welder and Dr. Green on prospects of China's um, democratic, prospects of a democratic movement in China. Um, there's some democracy experts like Dr. Larry Diamond who say that perhaps that moment is coming pretty soon, 10, 20 years. Um, he argues that China and Beijing is damned if it's damned if it delivers economically and damned if it doesn't. Um, on the other hand, we're seeing China you know, seemingly tightening its grip, um, supporting like-minded authoritarian regimes in the world, and eroding democratic systems and societies in like, Australia, New Zealand, here in the US, Taiwan. So my question is, how do you assess um, the prospects of a democratic movement in China? Um, and what should the U.S. and um, the free world do to, one, preserve our democratic systems, and two, maybe encourage uh, and foster a, an environment where change in China is more likely? Thanks. It's going to happen during your course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I do think that the Chinese government is riding a tiger here. And that tiger is this unbelievable change that's going on in Chinese society. And I'm not just talking about um, you know, higher incomes, but the urbanization of China, uh, the, the digital age of China, these big companies outside of Chinese government control. There are all sorts of things that are happening to that society that I think create a very unpredictable future. One that we don't have the ability to understand because if anybody understands what the digital information revolution is going to do to us, you know, in the next 20 years, um, not even that, right? Um, you know, driverless cars and all the rest Robots. of this. Uh, we, I, I think, I think, we as political scientists are going to struggle with this. Mm. I think we're already struggling with it, to be honest with you. I think the, the pace of change is so rapid now. I mean, look at the election of Donald Trump. How on earth would you have predicted that? And nobody, really very few people did. Because the digital age changed something dramatically. And suddenly, a persona on a show called The Apprentice becomes the most credible political figure in the United States, at least at that moment. 
That's, you know, it's, it's just not, how do you, how do you predict that? Um, we're, we're dealing with technologies and changes that are so rapid and, and so profound that I, I don't know how to predict whether or not a democracy movement. I do think it will likely come outside of China and work its way into China. Because I think with the kinds of controls on the media the Chinese seem to be affecting, it's going to be very hard for it to, to grow up in China. So I would guess it would grow up outside of China and then come into the country. Around 2005, I think it was then, maybe 2004, mm -hmm. there was a very popular show on Chinese TV called Super Girls. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like America Got, ta America got Talent, so, so girls would dance and stuff. And so for the finals, um, CCTV, the TV uh, right. company, decided to have to let p Chinese people vote for their favorite Supergirl yeah. with cell phones, and 72 million Chinese voted. Um, and the next day, the party shut down the show. So there's your answer to whether there's a cultural predetermination against democracy. Um, the World Bank, a few years ago, um, uh, led by a Chinese economist, argued that China's economy was stuck in the middle income trap, that to move from uh, manufacturing assembly to an information and knowledge-based economy would be very, very hard. And it seems to me it's going to be hard without greater freedom of information and access to the internet. Um, but some, you know, China experts say no. They've, you know, Xi Jinping may have perfected the Leninist state to the point where he can, he can get out of that trap. I don't know. Um, I do think Joseph's point about the economy being, if I understood correctly, maybe the most important variable in explaining authoritarianism in the Middle East. Uh, applies because the economy could be the most important variable. Um, and sorry, just to take yeah. Dennis' point, I mean, about this technology, where we go forward yeah. with this artificial intelligence, robots, I mean, you know, you can think again of countries like Egypt with 95 million people. And if unemployment is very high, what is going to happen in 30 years? Is it going to be much worse? I don't know the answer to that. So there will be new ways that a younger generation of Chinese can get around the Great Firewall. There will also be, by I think 2020, 1.4 billion closed-circuit TVs in China. <laughs> so the technology cuts both ways. Um, when I think of the economic variable, it's the, it's the shock to the system. So Indonesia, Brazil, um, other countries democratized when the economic um, model broke. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, that's, you know, when the economic model broke in pre-war Germany and Japan, they became dangerous authoritarian states. And I'm not, I'm not predicting that for China. You yeah. can't rule it out. So, there's, so our escape is we don't know. <laughs> um, yes, right here. Uh, so oh, sorry. Can you wait for the mic? Sorry. So within both uh, East Asian and Middle East countries, there are usually different factions within the author uh, authoritarian government itself. And therefore, my first question is, have those different factions, usually the reformists and also the conservatives, influenced the actual authoritarian leader's decision? And if so, how have they influenced the authoritarian leader's decisions making? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, it, again, from just a country perspective, just the Turkish cases, there have been attempted sort of factions within the Turkish hierarchy, political hierarchy, from within Erdogan's own political party and movement to try and not check him or remove him necessarily, but you know, tone him down, clip his wings, you know, saying what you're doing is good, but you, you might want to consider more conciliatory. 
All those have been marginalized, sidelined in brutal terms, politically. Any confidant or close associate of Erdogan politically that he's been close with for the past 30 years as a politician, without exception, they have all been terminated politically. Uh, they have been gotten rid of, marginalized. And on top of that, they get demonized in the, in the media and personally and familiarly threatened that should they choose to check, check Erdogan or offer an alternative or, God forbid, from his perspective, run against him at the upcoming elections, there will be dire consequences. And by that, we mean arrests, arrests of their families, economic decapitation of their interests, um, you know, skeletons of the, from the closet that, that will come out that they don't want to come out. So a very realist and sort of pernicious way of saying, if you cross me, I'm not just going to sort of slap you or bicker in the, against you in the media. I will take you down. I mean, I think in the other um, middle part of the Middle East, it has been co-opt them or uproot them. Did it always work? Not necessarily, because the one group that they could neither really co-opt or uproot is the Islamic movement. Right. And that's yeah. really what became the main opposition. Given the fact that they destroyed all other opposition, that became the only alternative viable. I would say one of the things is that in an authoritarian system, it's inevitable that interest groups um, are generated by that system. And so you're always going to have, if you will, factions. In China today, what do you have? You have local government is a very strong interest group that has very real interests that the federal, the, the central government has to contend with. And even if you know, they, they say they have all the control in Beijing, we all know they don't. Uh, down at the localities, you know. The mountains are high and the emperor is far away is the favorite Chinese saying. Uh, so um, it, it's part of this insecurity we were talking about before. You have people out there, human nature is to want to accumulate power. And people within the system are going to try and find ways to accumulate that power. And that's something the leader always has to watch out for. Over here on this side. Thank you. My name is Khairuddin uh, Makhzoumi from uh, Arab Studies. My question is to uh, Professor Sinan. And it's, uh, I'm just going to go a little bit micro in details uh, about Turkey's invasion of, not invasion, or moving their uh, military to Bashiqa camp uh, in north of Mosul when uh, Iraqi uh, forces wanted to liberate Mosul. Uh, and how this relate to Kirkuk as a national security threat for Turkey, if you can expand on that point. And what do you think about the $5 billion that was given by Turkey yesterday to Iraqi? Uh, what, is there some sort of plan between Turkey and Iraq? Uh, I have a just small comment uh, with uh, Dr. Michael. You said when we toppled the regime, I guess, you and the Iraqi people together toppled yeah, the, the, the regime. I think that's, that's an important part <laughs> yeah. of the narrative because uh, without the Iraqis' unwillingness of uh, fighting with Saddam, uh, United States wouldn't be able to uh, topple Saddam Hussein. And we can draw that from uh, Vietnam. But my question to you, will the United States uh, honor their promise for the sorry, sixth assurance of the 1982? Uh, between Taiwan and China, and how do you see this um, happening with the Trump administration and uh, what's happening now with North Korea and the 
aid going to North Korea, about $5 billion a year to North Korea. How do you see that? Thank you. Wow, that's um, very detailed questions. Uh, but thank you. Um, I, think that my, I, I think the best way of answering that, I don't know if it will satisfy you, but um, I think all of Turkey's military incursions into, be it northern Iraq or um, now into northwestern Syria, is with, with the objective of essentially a domestic audience. I mean, there is, in my opinion, nothing Turkey cannot resolve uh, with its, in relation to its grievances about Kurdish state formation or Kurdish, um, or what, what Erdogan calls a terror state forming in northern Syria. Um, this is nothing that cannot be solved without Erdogan essentially working with uh, either the PYD, YPG in, in Syria, but also in the way that they have done with, uh, with, with the Kurds in, uh, in Iraq. So I think it's with a view to a domestic audience. And, and what I mean by that is he's going to stand for presidential elections. And what he's doing is he's using all pretexts of military activity, which the Turkish military has always been ambivalent about. They're not big fans of this. They, the commands and staff structure of the, of the Turkish armed forces have always been ambivalent about offensive, um, undefined campaigns such as this. It's, it's there to show his domestic sort of the, the, the voting population of Turkey, we're tough on terrorism. We're not gonna, if the United States doesn't listen to us, we'll take care of it of our own. Um, I'm not sure about what Erdogan wants to do with the payment of $5 million. I, I, I wasn't aware of that particular sum. But in my opinion, it could, if I had to speculate, it was possibly to just basically buy silence or cooperation with the Iraqi authorities if, if, if necessary. I think he's done that rather well with the Barzani administration in, in Kurdistan, um, in Iraqi Kurdistan. He's, he's been very successful at that to the point that Barzani has condemned the PYD, YPG, and is okay with Turkey going in there. Um, yeah. So the six assurances, it's one of those um, iconic <laughs> Um, things that all Asia hands must memorize. Um, in 1982, the Reagan administration uh, told uh, Taipei, we're, we're, um, we're going to not negotiate over our heads with Beijing, basically, as they signed a third communique with China. And, you know, at the beginning of the Trump administration, people were not sure which way he was going to go on any of this. I think, Dennis, tell me if you agree, but I think basically on Taiwan policy, on alliance policy, um, the Trump administration, a lot of it is because of Secretary Mattis at the Pentagon, has fallen into a pretty um, mainstream uh, approach. Um, there are wildly unpredictable things, though. Trade policy is completely different from any previous administration, and the bloody nose talk with North Korea. So there are some things that are very um, uncertain. But on Taiwan policy, U.S.-Japan alliance, um, sort of the core pillars of the security agreements we have, he's not been as disruptive as some people feared. Um, I think we can take one more quick question, because I know you've been waiting. Um, and we'll try to make it brief and then wrap up. Uh, Matt Hines, Security Studies Program, so a little different than everyone else. Uh, my question is specifically regarding to Turkey. Uh, to what extent is that sending a signal to other authoritarian leaders, both in the Arab world and in uh, particularly Southeast Asia, that Western security cooperation is undesirable and unproductive? Um, thank you. That, again, that's an extremely challenging question. I think uh, Erdogan's posturing it, it, in this sort of you know, NATO, United States sort of framework in terms of saying, if, you know, he's actually just said yesterday 
NATO does not equal the United States. Essentially saying that if necessary, we can fall out of favor in bilateral relations with the US, but can still remain to be a, player, a big player within NATO. Um, I'm not sure if that's feasible, but that's how he anyway conceptualized it. I think for Hib's part, I don't think there is any conceivable way that Turkey is seriously entertaining the idea that it can realize its own security interests in the short or medium term outside of this bilateral framework with the US and NATO in, in general. But nevertheless, he's willing to use it because he realizes that the administration here is absent. There's nobody home. Um, nobody's pushing back against Erdogan and nobody's on the, on the, on the flip side imposing a US policy on the region. Um, there is no concerted policy, and the United States is absent in Syria uh, and region at, at present, um, with, a, with the exception of a very narrow focus on defeating the Islamic State, but nothing else beyond that. Um, but conversely, powers in the region are play, playing off against that. Um, for the Russians, they look at this and think, hey, if we can sort of you know, manipulate this enough, then is there a, if there's even the remotest chance of tearing Turkey away from NATO and the US, we'll play that. Hence why the Russians have allowed um, airspace, uh, opened up airspace to Turkish bomb, uh, fighter jets uh, in Syria. Um, I'm not sure if it can last in the longer term, but I think Erdogan's strategy is now a, a mix of hyperbole, um, using words as blunt trauma, uh, against his American partners, and it's working. In the last week, including today, we have the Secretary of State in Ankara now, preceded by the Defense Secretary, Jim Mattis, and the National Security Advisor, Mr. H.R. Uh, McMaster, in less than six days visiting Ankara saying, hold on a second. Um, I don't think it's a concerted effort on, in substantive terms that will play out with Turkey stepping outside of this. But I think they'll try and manipulate it to their advantage as much as possible, um, and also make Turkey seem a little unpredictable. Um, it's a little convoluted, but I don't think there's a clear picture. Can I just say one quick thing? Actually, in the political economy of the Arab world today, the model is not the US, it's China. That's really the model for success, yeah. that republics and monarchies, oil producers and non-oil producers, that's really the model they would like to emulate. As for Erdogan, I think he's still very popular on the Arab street. Yeah, he is. So, uh, Professor Sassoon, um, thank you. Uh, Professor Sinodi, thank you. Um, your last comment, Joseph, is a perfect segue for maybe a future theme. Uh, for uh, Arab studies, nation studies, working together, uh, which is um, uh, not only the, the model of China in the Middle East, but the implications of American energy self-sufficiency for American allies in Asia who depend on the Middle East and the sea lanes in between. So this has been a really fun collaboration, and maybe we should think about doing it again around, around another theme. I've been asked to um, say that this event is made possible in part by a Department of Education Title VI grant to support Georgetown's uh, National Resource Center on the Middle East in North Africa. We also have a Title VI grant in Asian studies, but I don't know if we used it, but let's say. <laughs> I'm not a good authoritarian leader. I have no idea what's going on in my regime. Um, I want to thank, the, thank the, our, our staff in both centers and all the students. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, Rudyard Kipling said, you know, East is East and West is West, never the twain shall meet. But Asian and, and Arab studies have done a good job meeting today. So thank you all very much. Thank you. <laughs>